Hi, and welcome to the Five Aero Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the aviation industry. Welcome to the first one of 2021, and although it's a new year, it is straight back down to business. On today's show, we're going to review the news, and then we're going to take a more in-depth look at the situation in the Middle East, where relations between Qatar and the rest of the GCC have been restored, and the implications that is going to have for the airline industries. To do this, I'm joined today by Chris Tarry and Peter Lynham from Five Aero. Hi, gents. How are you today? And did you have a good new year? Hello, Andrew. I'm uh, very well, thanks. Yeah, very well. And yes, uh, Andrew. Well, there's lots to discuss, so let's get straight into it right now. So the start of a new year, but the news doesn't stop. We've got five big stories to look at this week. Number one is around Norwegian Air and its uh, application to go into creditors' voluntary liquidation. Then we're going to look at the numbers that came out of London Heathrow, comparing them back to 2019, and really get a feel for what COVID has done to passengers. We're also going to look at Boeing and the fine they received in relation to the 737 MAX. Then we're going to round off with looking at Gatwick and the announcement around their second runway. And finally, a story that some people may miss, but there's actually really big news within the industry about an Airbus A321 that flew nine hours and 49 minutes. But let's go back up to the top of the news section and um, let's start with Norwegian Air. We had the announcement just recently, the very sad announcement that is applied for creditors' voluntary liquidation. Now, in in old money, that's insolvency. Um, Chris, Peter... What's happened and why and uh, and what does this mean for the industry? So Norwegian have essentially um, said they are going to close down their long haul business. They started off this business a few years ago very much as a disruptor. Um, They were confident that there was a, a big market and a business model that would sustain them in the long haul, low cost segment and I guess one thing we take out of this is um, can anybody else really succeed in that segment or is it just an impossible nut to crack? Because they were clearly struggling before COVID started and uh, and that's essentially finished off that business, I guess. And the people who are probably smiling today, well, obviously IAG will be happy. Share price reflective of that, I think. But Virgin Atlantic will probably be very happy as well because they're clearly struggling as well. They they finally posted their 2019 uh, accounts a few days ago, and and their problems are well publicised. So so they will potentially be uh, a bit happier. But if you were to Norwegian, it, it, it's a bad day. There's 1,100 jobs going to go in the UK: pilots, cabin crew, ground handling people, etc. And also jobs in France, Spain, Italy, and the United States. They were operating 138 aircraft at one stage, of which 37 were new 787s. From a passenger's point of view, at the moment they've got 12 aircraft flying, um, all short haul. Ambitions to fly 50, they've said this year. Um, I'll be surprised if it gets to 50, to be honest. And does this, is this COVID or is this actually? You know, another nail in the the concept of low cost long haul. Do, do passengers just not want to be on a plane that long in a in a low cost environment? I'm not sure it's that, Andrew. But one of the problems they had was it, it's easy uh, um, comparatively to provide long haul low cost, and and the network carriers do this all the time at the back of the aeroplane. But you can only do that if it's been subsidised by high rollers at the front of the aeroplane paying serious dollars. And and Norwegian were not really credible in that market because they tended to operate to secondary airports and they had very low frequency. 
And most business travelers will tell you that even if they don't particularly like the airline that they're flying on, they'll be attracted to it uh, because they know that if the aircraft gets a technical defect or the crew fail to show or whatever, then there's another one coming along in a couple of hours' time. Whereas with Norwegian, if you were flying from, um, say, Bradley Field to Edinburgh or something like that, the, you know, the next plane to turn up would be the following day's Norwegian. And in fact, that wouldn't turn up either because the, the, the plane had a technical fault in the first place. So, um, yeah, I think it's a very difficult uh, market to penetrate. I think the other thing is, and I think we have to recognise it, that uh, Norwegian was already going undergoing a sort of massive programme of shrinking and um, you know throughout uh, 2019 uh, we saw it sort of um, e- exiting from routes we saw it sort of shrinking its future fleet and uh, turning uh, aircraft into cash but uh, as, as Peter said it's uh, a challenging market uh, it's about mix it's not just about volume but in terms of um, you know, is, is there a market for low cost or low fares of course and uh, as Peter said uh, it's usually at the back end of uh, uh, um, other uh, airlines uh, aircraft well we, we wish everybody connected with Norwegian our, our deepest sympathies and I suppose just going from one story that's not great to another London Heathrow announced its passenger numbers for 2020 last week and they're down and this is an eye-watering figure down 58.8 million compared to 2019 now we've talked a lot about the potential impact of COVID and what it's doing to the industry. But when you see it in black and white, you just get a sense of, of how difficult it has been for the industry over the over the COVID period. To put that in percentage terms, that's a 73% uh, decrease on the prior year. And bear in mind that Heathrow only started to become impacted uh, midway through March. So there were a couple of good months at the start of the year. So if that was a kind of full year effect... That's probably an 80% decline. And Heathrow, it's not what you necessarily first think of as being a a big hub connecting airport in the way that, say, Doha is or Amsterdam, Schiphol, etc. But still a significant proportion of business transfers through um, Heathrow. And at the moment, with all the restrictions that come and go and are sometimes difficult to predict, the people who are travelling are avoiding uh, where they can connecting airports because it just adds complexity and uncertainty to their travel plans. I think that's right, and you know, our, or my view certainly is that we're going to see hub and spoke take longer to come back for all those reasons. And one one of the issues is, uh, you know, as soon as you start cutting back on um, frequency, uh, the connectivity attraction uh, decreases, uh, the wait time uh, at the airport uh, increases. And uh, it becomes a less attractive option, let alone, you know, people's sort of perhaps aversion to sort of meeting in um, or uh, coming together in uh, connecting areas. And I think the other thing uh, about Heathrow is um, obviously we've just seen another uh, lockdown enforced uh, in the UK. Uh, we're seeing more restrictions being brought into travel. Uh, some may argue rather belatedly about testing people coming into the country or closing borders. Um, and, you know, it's not very difficult to conclude what the outcome of that is going to be. It's going to be even less travel. And even compared to the forecast that Heathrow itself made for the final quarter of uh, the year just gone, 2020, uh, there are about a half a million passengers short on on that final quarter forecast. So it's very tough. Um, you know, we know what causes it. Uh, we've got to begin to look to the future. And, uh, you know, as we've written, uh, it's going to depend on what the underlying position is, what the structure of the market is, as Peter's alluded to. And we've certainly seen where there are large domestic markets, traffic beginning to recover. So, um, yeah, it's not going to be a uniform rate of recovery. 
Uh, and uh, we've still got, um, although the vaccines are coming out, a number of other, as economists would say, necessary conditions to be satisfied before we see uh, aviation begin to accelerate in the recovery phase uh, on a wider basis. Uh, and we've followed this story for a number of weeks now, or, or really since COVID began on the Five Aero and over on the Infocast podcast, and we, and we will continue to. Um, another story that we've been following uh, with great detail is the Boeing 737 MAX story. Now, we know they've been approved for flights and they're back up in the air now, but it's been announced that Boeing are facing a $243.3 million fine for concealing information um, to the American government around the accidents. Um, this is huge. And if it wasn't Boeing, if Boeing weren't the size they were, this would be the end of an organization, wouldn't it? Well, I'm going to give you an extra zero, Andrew. Is it even bigger than you think? That That's the fine. Uh, but they've actually come to a settlement of $2.5 billion with the uh, US government for uh, defrauding them by concealing information. So as you say, if that was a, a smaller company, that would have a huge impact. But a company the size of Boeing, I suspect the public relations damage is probably um, at least as bad, if not greater, than the financial damage. The blame appears to be being apportioned on just two individual test pilots, which may or may not uh, be fair. And very interestingly, in the last few days, what's starting to come out of the press in America is a story which obviously has uh, has legs over there and has its basis, you might uh, call informed sources, that it's now thought that the aircraft didn't need this MCAS software in the first place to improve its performance characteristics, particularly its tendency to stall. So if that's true, this is a real kind of disaster for Boeing in that um, it, it was, with the benefit of hindsight, it was avoidable because you didn't need to make these changes to the software. It, it really is a tragic case. And I suppose the point you've alluded to there is probably we don't yet know how many passengers are going to see that they're going to fly on a, a 737 MAX and go, yeah, that's okay. I'm going to get onto that plane. And when does actual confidence in the in the, the technology and the machinery come back to the extent that you know, you, you'll be happy to sit on one of those for a, a long flight? Yeah, probably very early to say, um, Andrew, at the moment. I think, like we say for... For everything we talk about in this podcast, you, you can't just treat the, the market as a, a kind of singular entity. You, you have to look at uh, business travel, leisure travel, etc. Certainly, as we go through the summer, we'll start to see airlines such as TUI and Ryanair um, in Europe operating the MAX again. And it, it'll be interesting to see what, um, what consumer reaction you get. I think Ryanair have said they will not actually be telling people in advance uh, what subtype of 737 they're going to travel on because that's not how they schedule their airplanes but whether or not um, that is sustainable we'll we'll find out in the months ahead and i think what what's clear is that before it was the view was that um, passengers didn't really take into account what airplane they flew on certainly because of the visibility uh, of it and the issues around it um, they're going to take more interest and as peter said it's going to be very interesting to see what happens and uh, the extent to which some airlines as they have in america have given up op- op- passengers the option to change their travel plans um, if they don't want to fly in a 737 max so still yet to play out i think andrew uh, yeah it's, it's another story that we're going to continue to monitor the fallout from it but just switching gears slightly, we, we have some like more positive news starting to come out of the industry. And, and one of those stories is Gatwick and its announcement that it is going to invest into upgrading its existing second runway. Um, this is a 
positive, the really positive statement for Gatwick. Why are they taking this decision now? Yeah, I suppose, Andrew, they are taking the long-term view. You know, runways do not get built overnight, particularly in Britain with all of the various planning restrictions. So they have said that if all of the permissions fall into place as, um, as they hope, it should become operational towards the end of the 2020s. So by, by that time, we should be out of COVID, we hope, and hopefully nothing else has come our way to derail the industry. Um, so, yeah, you have to take these investment decisions um, on a very long term. They presumably got an eye to their major competitor around the M25 at Heathrow, where there was a, a positive move um, in the courts a few weeks ago uh, in terms of how the environmental impact after the Paris Agreement should be taken into account. But that's only probably episode three or four in a 29-part series. And it's got a long way to go before you'll see that third runway at Heathrow. The, the Gatwick solution is a kind of uh, a cheap and cheerful solution in that it's building on an existing taxiway. So, so it's easier to do. You don't have to procure any more land. It's less disruptive. And um, it, it'd be interesting to, to watch that project um, come to fruition. I think the other, the other thing is we say, look, we've got to be very clear that this industry is going to recover. And I know on an earlier podcast, we uh, discussed that, uh, I think, Peter, you made the point, this is either the fourth or fifth time you'd heard that it was the end of the aviation industry. Um, there are people who suggested that there's an existential threat to it. Well, that's wrong. The demand is there. There may be an existential threat to some of those on the supply side. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, you know, that that is always the case. But you know, on our forecast, we're looking at recovery in short haul uh, to previous levels, probably by about 24, 25. Uh, and if we look at the structure of traffic and the way that traffic is going to come back most quickly, it's going to be leisure first. Uh, and we saw that when markets were reopened uh, in uh, 2020. And we've seen a little peak before they closed down uh, routes to Dubai out of the UK uh, in, um, well, in, they closed them mm. last week or effectively <laughs> made it very difficult to come back into the UK. Um, but we can see the peak up and we can see the lift up in the Heathrow December figures for traffic to the Middle East. So it's going to recover. It's then going to grow. And if we're looking to get back to where we were, uh, certainly on um, short haul leisure by 20, uh, 2024, 2025, which was uh, a significant component of Gatwick's, you're then looking to provide additional capacity as you move through the latter part of the decade. It is another interesting one. That it's uh, So many of these stories are watch and see, and that's what we'll continue to do here on the, the Five Aero podcast. But just to close out the news section, there's one story that's come out that people may have missed or have actually missed the implications of. So Sata Azor have announced that they have broken the record for an Airbus A321 to fly the flight time, and they've got that at nine hours 49 minutes. Now, for the casual observer, you might think, well, we can already fly longer than that. Why, and this is getting into the proper aviation geek stuff, why is that so important that they've got that plane to fly for that long? It's kind of back to the future, Andrew. Um, when Chris and I were growing up, if you wanted to travel across the Atlantic, you tended to be on a narrow-bodied aeroplane because that's all that was available. But it would be a kind of smoky, noisy, fuel-guzzling Boeing 707 DC-8 Convair. And it, was, it, it was black and white, wasn't it? It was black and white then. When you like, there's no colour on that. Four lines, definitely. There was no no, um, no in flight entertainment. So uh. <laughs> exactly, yeah, the in flight entertainment was looking at your watch every five minutes, thinking, "Oh God, <laughs> we're not there yet." Um, obviously, we're seeing um, demand reduce because of COVID, and the the segment we expect to recover 
at the, at the end, as Chris has said many times, is the business travel segment because you've got economic issues, but you've also got the duty of care, which some corporates are very worried about. They don't want to expose their employees either to catching the disease or getting stuck because of uh, an immigration um, or border control requirement. So if, if airlines can operate long-haul services and particularly build frequency, uh, which is always good for business traveler, using narrow-bodied aircraft, but generations better than these 707s and DC-8s and things from the 1960s, then it's going to be very profitable. Um, Airbus have specifically designed the 321 long range and then the next version of this, which is still to come, the extra long range, to address this market. And the airlines who will be operating those aircraft can look forward to making considerable amounts of money, in my view, um, on that, particularly over the last few years. Whether or not that's particularly appealing from a consumer point of view who've been used to traveling on the 747s and the A380s, which have, have kind of been retired over the last 12 months, well, that, that that's another issue. But it may well be that on some routes, we, we don't get the choice. I think the other thing, as, as you say, Peter, it's a question of sort of max, as an airline, you're looking to maximize the revenue per square meter of floor space. You can do that very well in an A321. Um, the economics are outstanding. You're burning about two tons of fuel an hour. Um, and, um, from a cost and a revenue point of view and right sizing the airplane for the market as well. It's, it's an ideal aircraft. It's, you know, really, you know, Boeing had the 757, which they haven't developed a successor airplane to, which was a very, very successful airplane. Um, and it's very interesting when it was originally launched, the A321 was only really going to be a European airplane. It wasn't really going to have trans, uh, transcontinental range in the US, which is obviously what the 757 had. But it's interesting to see how range, not so much size in the case of this, that's developed over the time. And it's going to be a very attractive and very capable airplane. Or it is. The existing one is. And then the XLR is even more so in terms of range. Just joining the dots together for me here. So we always talk about how you have to look at the industry level. We talked earlier about Heathrow. You said, Peter, that Heathrow, you know, often people miss the fact that that's a hub. Do the, what are these longer range planes going to do to the hub market? Is it, is it going to cause it more problems or can the hub still survive even though you have these planes that can go this, this distance now? Well, they will open up um, new markets. Another example, which was announced over um, Christmas time, and we referred to it very briefly in our Brexit podcast, was Aer Lingus, the Irish airline, setting up a UK subsidiary based in Manchester to take up some of the routes that Thomas Cook, which was an airline that went bankrupt a couple of years ago, were operating. So they will be operating, say, from Manchester to New York and Boston, um, and they will take people away who previously would have flown down to to London or maybe gone via Amsterdam or Paris. Um, so, yeah, it will have an impact um, on the hubs from that point of view. More positively, I think, for the hubs, as I said, I think it will um, enable airlines to build back frequency because as routes come back post-COVID, they won't come back at the frequency um, that you saw before. You won't have four or five flights a day from Heathrow to Boston, um, five flights to San Francisco, et cetera. You build back with ones and twos. And then as you add each um, additional frequency to do that with a narrow-bodied air aircraft, as, as Chris was saying, 
will be much less risky uh, for the airlines to do that in terms of adding back um, seats and floor space. Okay. So it's a, it's suppose it's another watch and see, but it's it's really interesting to see how this market is developing and it, and just to see how it all links together. You know, we keep saying about it. Chris always goes on. You you can't look at it at the industry level. You have to get into the detail of it. And I agree, but sometimes for the casual observer, it's useful just to pull it all up again and go. All right, so that's what's going to happen. Anyway, that's the end of the news, and we're going to start to look at Qatar. So we're going to spend 10 minutes or so now looking at what's happened here in the Middle East where I am. Um, it may have been missed in Europe and in particular with what's going on with COVID and vaccinations and etc. But last week it was announced that the dispute between Saudi Arabia and Qatar had been resolved and restrictions were being lifted. Now, for those of you who don't know, tensions around this had been high in the region for a number of years. But back in July 2017, almost a full-scale um, dispute broke out between the GCC partners and their affiliates. And that effectively meant that there was a blockade on Qatar. Now, you, you really, unless you live here or know the region, you can't, you, to understand the implications of that, because effectively what happened, you had 48 hours for Qatari nationals to return back to Qatar. The borders were shut. And from what used to be a one-hour flight to Doha from more or less anywhere in the GCC um, became a eight-hour slog through several different countries. And the impact on trade particularly and the economy of Qatar was enormous. Now, that's all gone which is great. And we're starting to see uh, all the restrictions being lifted and flights coming back. But what we wanted to do here was there's obviously a huge aviation market in the Middle East. And there's major players in Qatar, in Qatar, in Emirates and in Etihad. Um, Chris, what happened when this blockade got put into place? What happened to the aviation market in the in here in the Middle East and, and why? Well, Andrew, I had a very simple way of looking at it, that um, the closure of the countries resulted in 12 million seats on an annual basis having to be reallocated. So that was 8 million seats from Qatar and 4 million seats for those airlines that uh, flew uh, to and from Doha from the other countries within the region. And um, what we saw in the case of um, uh, Qatar was redeployment to other um, uh, places within Europe and the rest of the world. What uh, Qatar Airlines also had to do was the flying restrictions. So uh, it had to fly around countries um, and that added uh, significantly to its fuel burn. So its fuel burn went up. Um, and, um, you know, the, the reality, is, as you were saying, it changed the traffic flows. There were significant flows, for example, from people from uh, the KSA down to Doha, particularly to the Pearl, where, you know, a lot of interest there. And I visited that a couple of years ago and it was very, very quiet. And it was explained to us the, the reasons for that. So um, huge impact. Um, you know, you couldn't substitute it all. And uh, although in terms of uh, frequency, uh, Qatar has sort of main, re retained its network intact as it's pulled um, passengers from other parts of uh, what was an expanded network. Some markets were opened earlier. Some frequencies were increased. In terms of uh, the financial impact, so in 2016, um, and if you look at it the way I calculate the figure, which is to add the general administrative overhead charge uh, to get to the operating result, then uh, Qatar uh, Airways lost about 100 million um, uh, Qatari rials. 2017, the loss was 600 million. Um, 2018, the loss was 3.8 billion. 2019, the loss was 8.0 billion, about just about 8 billion sad, um, Qatari rial. And in 2020, 5.8 billion. Now, um, these are huge sums of money. 
Um, and this is against the background where clearly you've seen this structural uh, change in the market, which has been imposed by the blockade. What we've seen of late is that um, the chief executive and chairman of uh, Qatar Airways has been very insistent that the most important thing is to build back his frequencies again. And uh, I think he was saying a couple of months ago, he was going from 100 frequency, uh, hun sorry, 100 destinations to serving 136. So it's this whole issue of providing this um, system and the attraction of connectivity. It's the cost associated with it, given that passenger numbers are low. But uh, it's an opportunity for them to perhaps take market share from others in the region uh, where they haven't um, built back the frequencies and haven't built back the destinations as quickly. If we look at it from the economic impact, and you touched on that, uh, Andrew, in your introduction. Uh, now, in 2016, um, the figures from the Qatari Statistics Office suggest that there were just under 5 million visitors from the GCC. That's 5 million um, arrivals in, uh, in, in, in Doha. In 2017, 752,000. That's We had, obviously, a few months of normal uh, travel. That fell to 200,000 in 2018. Uh, 223,000 in 219. And if we look at it in terms of the impact of COVID and making an assumption for the figure for December, then that figure for, Dece for uh, 2020 was just 61,000. If we look at it in terms of hotels, well, th the interesting thing is that hotel occupancy for five-star hotels has remained broadly the same, but the so-called revenue per available room, which is exactly the same as a sort of uh, airline, uh, almost like a uh, a, a, a rask for, for, for an airline. Um, in uh, March 2016, that was 561 uh, Qatari rials per room, available room. It fell to 340 in 2018-2019. And again, the COVID effect, uh, 298. So what we've seen is a revenue impact. Um, yes, they kept occupation up, uh, occupation rates up, up until 2019. But in 2020, obviously, because of COVID, we saw the occupation rate um, fall to about 45% and uh, the uh, revenue per available room fall as well. So very difficult. Um, we've seen, I think, obviously, an important removal of the blockade. Of course, it's going to take time for traffic to build back. And as we've said in other podcasts, you've got to remove the problem or, or the, the constraints and restrictions posed by travellers' reluctance to travel or inability to travel because of restrictions associated with COVID. And I, th I think from my perspective, this also isn't a zero-sum game. So it's not that Qatar's traffic fell and that was immediately absorbed by Etihad and by Emirates. Um, these were major routes that you would go to any of the airports in the morning and it would just be a shuttle going back and forth. So that traffic just completely went away and that was profitable traffic as well. So I would expect to kind of see that, that the whole region should pick up now because obviously, and we go back to our Brexit podcast and let's not get into the politics there, but you tend to trade most frequently with your closest partners. And if it only takes an hour to nip down there and have a meeting and come back, you are very, very likely to do that as many people did Two, potentially two or three times a week and the revenue that that generates around the air, aviation industry and then the hotels as well. I think I think there was a degree of substitution effect, um, but it was I think it's pretty limited. I, I haven't looked at it for a little while and I wouldn't want to venture any figures before I review it. But if we if we look at it in terms of uh, capacity that Qatar was putting into the market and if we look at sort of uh, 2015, 2016, uh, in terms of frequencies um, that, that increased by 17% a year for uh, Qatar, 5% in 2017, about 1% in uh, 2018. 
And then 2019, the uh, frequencies grew by about 12%, uh, seats grew by about 9%. And in 2020, obviously, because of the restrictions, both capacity and seats fell by 38% compared to what they were in 2019. So the real, the real flat year, really, in terms of seats was uh, 2017. We then we saw a fall in, 20, in 2018 in the number, uh, five or 5% in the number of seats offered to the market. So huge period of adjustment. And the sort of, I say, the simple figure, which I started with, I'll sort of reiterate that, um, there were 12 million seats within the region that had to be reallocated because they couldn't touch, go to or from Qatar to countries or cities within the region. Uh, 8 million of those were Qatar uh, and the other 5 million, uh, sorry, other 4 million uh, were um, from airline, other airlines operating in the region and serving uh, Doha. I suppose it's a it's a fantastic step forward, isn't it? That in you know trying to come out of COVID and trying to rebuild back to have this blockade go and and the stimulus that that provides, it's a, it's a fantastic step forward. And I think everybody, as I say, we don't know the politics, but everybody should be congratulated. Um, just to close out, guys, it's the first one of the year. I towards the end of last year, I was thinking, well, where do we take the podcast in 20, 2021? And I think the big news is that just aviation it just never stops, whether it's. 9-11 whether it's global economic crisis whether it's covid whatever it is this industry just keeps moving and rolling and we'll continue to do this bringing all the latest news and events from the aviation industry gents thank you for your time this week and we will see you all in a couple of weeks time thank you very much Andrew.